When the American doughboys joined in on the front lines of the First World War in Europe in 1917 and 1918, it was America's first large-scale military action overseas. But far fewer Americans know about the history of what was called the War to End All Wars than we know about World War II. And when you walk through the memorials in Europe, you hear fewer American accents at that World War I memorial than you would at a World War II site. Mark D. Van Els is a professor at the City University of New York, and he's written a fascinating book that, that tells the forgotten stories of the American soldiers who went overseas to fight in the bloodiest war the world had ever seen. He's written a book called America and World War I, A Traveler's Guide, and he joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves. Professor Van Els, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. You know, Mark, when we think of World War I, uh, is it true that Europeans call it the Great War and, and we call it World War I, or what's the deal with the two names? It was known as the Great War because it really didn't seem that they could get any bigger than that, uh, sometimes called the World War. And then when World War II came along, then we began to call it World War I. Do Europeans call it World War I now, or do they still refer to it as the Great War? I hear the term Great War a lot. We also think of doughboys. And I think the only thing a lot of us know about World War I, when it, as it applies to Americans, is our guys were called the doughboys. Uh, where does that right. name come from? The name is just a nickname for an American soldier, much like GI in World War II, let's say. The origins of the term doughboy are sort of lost in the mists of time, and there are several different theories about where it comes from. Some date it back as early as the Mexican-American War in the 1840s, where the soldiers marching through the, the West in Mexico got all dusty and they looked like dough, and so they started hmm. to call them doughboys. Some say that it might be the, the dough that they cooked in the field. Some think the term might come from the buttons they wore that look like globs of dough. So there's no, no one knows really exactly right. where it came from. Uh, the term had been heard before World War I, but it becomes the uh, term to describe the American soldier in that conflict. When we think about the centennial of World War I, which went from 1914 to 1918, and, and there'll be several kind of centennials in these next few years... It's also interesting to know that all the people who remember that war are, are dead now. And uh, when nobody remembers a war firsthand, it kind of fades away. Have, have you thought about that much when you put together your guidebook, America and World War I? Yeah, I did. I mean, I'm a historian, so it's my job to sort of keep those memories alive. Uh, yeah, the last American World War I veteran died in 2011. The last World War I veteran in the world died uh, about a year or two ago. Now, there's no more memory, as you say, a personal memory of the war. And so it does run the risk of being forgotten. Now, how is the centennial being remembered to uh, counteract that? I found that in Europe, um, especially in France and Britain, it's something that is a very, a very solemn event. There have been a number of important ceremonies and remembrances and museums opening up and these sorts of things. I think Americans have not really given the First World War that much thought. We were only in the war for 18 months. It's all overshadowed by World War II. Americans seem much more interested in World War II. I mean, mm -hmm. it was much bigger and more dramatic, I suppose. And for us, World War I has sort of been overshadowed by World War II. You uh, know, if you travel to small villages in France and you look at the names of the dead on the local memorials, typically World War I is oftentimes much larger. Britain much the same as well. 
So that war left a much greater indelible mark on their psyche. And for Americans, it's almost sort of an afterthought. Yeah, I read that something like half of all the men of fighting age in France by the end of World War I, 1918, were casualties, either killed or wounded. And Yeah, it's incredible. Millions died, and we have a hard time imagining that. You go to a small town anywhere in Europe, and you, you look on the main square, and there's a memorial to uh, every family's got uh, a loved one on that list. Mm-hmm. And Multiple, usually. How many thousand uh, American soldiers died in combat in World War I? There are about 53,000 American soldiers who died in combat. Slightly more than that died of accidents and disease. World War I was the time of the great influenza epidemic. Oh. So even though battlefield medicine had gotten much better and soldiers who would have died in the Civil War would have survived in World War I, uh, because of the influenza hmm. epidemic, you still had slightly more die of disease and accidents than battlefield casualties. Now, those 53,000, they died just within a span of 18 months. I mean, we were only in the war from April 1917 to November of 1918. That's basically three semesters of college, when you think about it. Our presidential elections seem to last a lot longer <laughs> than that, right? So that's a remarkably short period of time for the whole country to gear up, form a mass army out of nothing, ship it overseas, and have it make a very important difference at the end of the war at that crucial moment. So it was a great moment for America, but we don't often think about it. And while other countries lost literally millions of people, they lost as many people as we lost in the whole war in, in a weekend mm-hmm. on occasion, I would imagine, yeah. we had a huge impact. I mean, we came in uh, in 1917, and while we, we didn't take the huge losses that, that our allies took, what was the impact? I mean, were we the turning point when, when the American troops came in? Yes and no. Oftentimes, Americans are criticized for coming over to Europe and claiming to have saved Europe from right. their problems and everything. And you know, there's, it's more complex than that. Mm-hmm. Um, the British Navy, for example, was able to uh, strangle the German economy, and that was a major factor in ultimate German defeat because their economy begins to collapse. But there's also no doubt that the Americans coming in at that crucial moment with a seemingly inexhaustible supply of manpower. Mm-hmm. You know, we were just getting geared up in 1918. Yeah. General Pershing expected 1919 would be the big show. And there was just no way the Germans could match the American manpower. You know, we stumbled along at first, but we got good at what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And um, the American entry into the war was a critical moment in ultimate Allied victory. I would just think from a psychological point of view, just the massive American economic power and to be able to just fuel the war must have just oh, yeah. been brutal for the psyche of the enemy. Uh, when when you did your research, Mark, you read a lot of letters and a lot of uh, first-hand accounts and so on. Give me a feeling for what it was like with American troops, not not commanders and so on, but just the grunts. Did they, did they mix it up with the Allies, with the Brits and the Irish and the French? Did they get along? Uh, what, what was the dynamic uh, among the troops? Yeah, they generally did get along. I think what's interesting about the World War I doughboy is how enthusiastic they were. America avoided for a long time trying to get into the war. There were anti-war songs that were sung uh, back home. But mm-hmm. once we were in it, and most were draftees, by the way, mm-hmm. who um, did not volunteer. But once they're in it, they committed themselves to it mentally as well as physically. Yeah. So they were anxious to get overseas. They really wanted to get over there and kick butt and take names and show what America <laughs> could do. They got along pretty well with the Allies. They got along well with the French. Uh, relations with the British could sometimes be a little cagier, I guess. Uh, they liked the Australians and the Canadians. And the Allies were glad to see them. You wrote in your book about how the American uh, doughboys were 
a little bit wide-eyed and naive and actually got distracted by picking up souvenirs along the way and so on. That's true in all wars, yeah. Because <laughs> I can just see these guys coming over. They've never been out of Nebraska, and here they are. It's a little R&R in Paris, and uh, you're, you're going through oh, these yeah. churches and these uh, towns that are just like all yours. It was a great cultural awakening. You know, there was a song, How Are You Going to Keep Him Down on the Farm Once He's Been to Paris? You know, it really was a eye-opening experience for these soldiers. Most had never been more than 20 miles from their hometown, probably never out of their state before. Then there's, you know, before they even go overseas, they're sent off to training camps in the U.S., big cities like New York or Chicago or someplace like this. Uh, they're introduced to things like showers and safety razors and movies and all kinds of things hmm. they've never seen before. And then, of course, going overseas, you know, travel was, foreign travel was for the wealthy. And here's some farm kid from Kansas who's suddenly in the middle of Notre Dame Cathedral. And it was... um a great cultural awakening for many of them, too, yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mark D. Van Els, and his book is America and World War One: A Traveler's Guide. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Jake's calling in from Houston in Texas. Jake, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Uh, my wife and I are going to be going to Paris next year. And last time I was in France, I was unable to find any resources on World War One memorials. We saw a lot from World War Two. But unfortunately, nothing really for World War I. Is there anywhere we can go that's a short trip from Paris? There are lots of places. My first suggestion would be to uh, look up on the web uh, the American Battle Monuments Commission. During the 1930s, they built some very stunning monuments on some of the battlefields of the First World War. They maintained the American cemeteries. And if you can get to those places, they're really spectacular. Mm. They hired the best artists of the day. They're done in this Art Deco style that's really quite stunning. So I would start there. And also, Jake, the uh, military museum in Paris at Les Invalides is, is wonderful for a look at World War I. No, yes, it is. I'd have to agree with that, too. Thanks, Jake. Thank you. Carol's calling in from Honolulu in Hawaii. Carol, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi. Do you have a comment for Mark? I do. My husband and I were in Vienna last year, and we went to a fabulous museum about eight minutes away by taxi from the Opera House, and it covered World War One. and I just wanted to mention it because it was a fantastic museum, and I actually can't pronounce the name of it. It's something like Harris Museum. Yeah, the military or the war museum in Vienna. It's got the car that uh, Emperor Franz Ferdinand was in when he was assassinated in Sarajevo. Hmm. That's right. We saw that. Oh, it's amazing. Mark, have you been to that museum? No, I have not. Um, I'm sorry to say. Vienna's on my short list, but I uh, have not been there. There are some really great World War I museums. There's a brand new one, for example, in a French city called Meaux. It's right outside of Paris. You can get there by train from Paris. It covers the whole war, including the American involvement in the war. You might also try the um, Imperial War Museum in London, which, of course, covers the British part of the war, but mm -hmm. it's, it, it's pretty good about the First World War. And there are some good places in the U.S. If you're in Kansas City, for example, that's where the National World War I Museum is. It was renovated and reopened, I think, in 2006. It's at a spot where they built a very spectacular war memorial after World War One, so it's just a spectacular place. In Kansas City, it's one of the best World War One museums I've been to. So we're talking Kansas City, Vienna, the War Museum in Vienna, the uh, Imperial War Museum in London, and Mo outside of Paris. How do we spell Mo, Mark? M-E-A-U-X. All right, Carol, good luck on your travels. Great, 
Thank you. Thanks for calling. And Alice is calling in from St. George in Utah. Hi, Alice. Thanks for taking my call, Rick. I'm going to be visiting the um, World War I Museum in Mo, and I was wondering if there are any sites that your guests could suggest in the immediate area. I'll be traveling by public transport that would enhance the visit to the museum. Yeah, I have to admit I drove when I was there. Uh, you can take the train from Paris to Mo, then take a bus from there to the museum itself. Many of the American battlefields are, you know, they're much more easily accessible by car. So, for example, not far away is a place called Chateau Thierry, which is a very important place in U.S. military history. The American troops were very important in stopping the German advance. During 1918, there's a very big memorial on a hill above the city. It's a big colonnade, and it's very spectacular with great views. And not far away from that is a place called Bella Wood, where the Marine Corps made a very famous attack. They took heavy casualties, but they showed themselves to be really tough fighters. You can still walk through the woods there, and you can still see some of the shell holes from the battle, zigzag trenches going through the woods. The story goes that some of the trees still have shrapnel in them, so mm. woodsmen refuse to cut them because they're afraid they're going to hit the, the metal shards and these sorts of things. And those aren't too far from Mo. I don't think you can get there by public transportation, however. I don't know that. You'd have to look into that. I would have to say driving to many of these places is probably better if you can swing that because some of the battlefields and monuments are in some rather remote places. And it's quite easy to rent a car, and then, of course, you're just within a couple hours of Verdun and the Somme and all the big-name battlefields mm-hmm. of World War I. Hey, Mark, uh, both Carol from Hawaii and Alice from Utah are talking about this uh, great World War I museum in Mo, M-E-A-U-X, outside of Paris in France. Can you yeah. just describe the museum just a little bit? Because it sounds like it's really one of the important ones. Yeah, it opened very recently. Right outside of it is a monument built by Americans to commemorate the first Battle of the Marne in 1914. It's state-of-the-art. It has lots of uniforms and lots of big hardware, um, planes and artillery pieces and those sorts of things. Again, it covers the war in the sort of bigger, grander sense, but it covers the lives of the troops and some of the hardware and those sorts of things, so it's worth a trip. So if we're going to be remembering the centennial of World War I, there's a lot of great museums, and uh, most of the battles that we think of were fought between Paris and the border of Germany, and Mo would be perhaps the best museum to see in the countryside there to take us back to the the gear and the trenches and all the heartache of, of the war to end all wars. Mark, if you're thinking about the centennial coming up, what, what do you wish after writing your book, uh, American World War One, and the fact that there's nobody around anymore that remembers it, a hundred years later, what should we remember or be mindful of about World War One? That's a good question. I think there are lots of things. I think World War One was this very critical moment in American history. As you mentioned before, it's our first major overseas war. It really made us a superpower. It's our first great involvement in Europe. In some respects, it did set the stage for a second world war in which we were also involved. I don't really get into this so much in my book, but generally speaking, this war also changed life here in the U.S. very significantly. Uh, For example, it's during the First World War that African Americans begin something called the Great Migration, where they begin to move in large numbers from the South to the North in search of jobs and these sorts of things. Uh, women end up getting the right to vote at the end of World War I. Prohibition comes in part because of the First World War. Uh, so it had this tremendous effect on our place in the world, mm-hmm. our society, and we forget about it. And now there's no one left to directly tell us the story. 
So I'd like people to uh, really remember this forgotten and neglected moment in American history. I'd also say that there, in addition to places in Europe, uh, one of the reasons I wrote this book is that there are lots of places here within the United States. There were training camps and air bases and naval stations and all kinds of things here in the U.S. Important museums like the one in Kansas City I mentioned before, monuments and these sorts of things. And you don't have to go very far to commemorate the First World War. You can probably do it mm. in your hometown somewhere, basically any town of any size probably has a World War I memorial somewhere you can visit. You know, I, I walked to the studio here today. I live in the New York City suburbs, and I got off at uh, Grand Central Station. Grand Central Station was built by a man named William Wilgus. He was the engineer who uh, designed the, the tracks and things like that. He was also the top railway engineer for the Army in Europe, and he built these fantastically complex rail yards, particularly one near Saint-Nazaire to help ship the stuff to the front. Then I walked through Times Square, and there's the statue of Father Duffy, who was the chaplain of a Irish-American combat unit, very much beloved by the troops, a very important figure in Irish-American history here in New York. A lot of people go to Times Square, the crossroads of the world. They sit under Duffy's statue, and they don't have any idea who he is or what he was about. Then I walked past Central Park. And that park has a number of World War I memorials, including a very large tree dedicated to the poet Joyce Kilmer, who was a, a soldier in World War I and killed in the summer of 1918. And that was just walking to the studio here. And I, th I think uh, if people look around their hometowns more carefully or their home states, I, they'll find lots of memorials and things like this that have been overlooked for 100 years. And this might be the time to really revisit them. And they can learn about that in your book, America and World War I, A Traveler's Guide. Mark D. Van Els, thanks so much for uh, shining a light on the Great War 100 years after it was fought. My pleasure. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Along those same lines, Europe 101, History and Art for the Traveler is a must-read for anyone who appreciates Europe's rich history and great art. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.